Coming of age in the 1960s in London, John DeFore had to make sense of a crazy world. So I'm filling out my passport thing, and it said occupation. I didn't have one. Right. I played guitar. Right. So I wrote down musician. Okay. And that's what I became. I was born in Mississippi, and my dad played music. The one, one luxury he allowed himself was stereo. So we always had music playing. Now, after spending nine years in swinging London, at the heart of the counterculture and the music scene, it was time for John to go back home to the Deep South. There, he would find that the craziest pieces of his life were beginning to fit together. Mainly childhood memories there. Lots of uh, music, of course, in the church, Baptist church, so lots of music. Well, I picked up the guitar when I was 12. Okay. And uh, it's paid for my entire life. Your first wife was Mm -hmm. from England? England, yes. And so was that just. It's a different culture. Family? Like her coming here? Well, her. uh, her dad hated Americans, okay. you know, and so he wouldn't come in the house when I was in the house originally. Okay. He changed over the years. Okay. And so when we went back over there, he finally asked if we would live with him. He had this huge, huge house, and he, he was a, a director of air traffic control for the commercial part of Heathrow Airport, Gatwick, and all those big airports. Okay. He was way up there, had a MBE from the Queen, and... Uh, his wife had passed away, my mother-in-law passed away, and we, and he was in this, uh, I don't know, one, two, three, four, uh, six-bedroom house with gardeners, quarters, and all this kind of thing. So he said if we would come and live there rent-free and cook for him and clean for him, well, it was kind of a, you know, and uh, it was a lot worse on my wife than it was. <laughs> so, but anyway, uh, so I lived there until 73, and then I came back in 73, decided to go to college. I've been going to college off and on all this time. Uh, in e- England over there, the military had, a, uh, I guess, I don't know what it was, but it's called University of Maryland Overseas Courses. Okay. And great professors. Just, well, a lot of people stay and teach here. These people chose to go over to Europe, explore, study, and teach while they're over there to make extra money. So they're the more adventuresome professors right. and the more, you know. Right. And I started off wanting to be an English uh, major while I was playing. And uh, there was a Dr. Witt, was uh, this English professor who taught uh, creative writing and, and literature. And so we were reading all these phenomenal artists and working with that. John absolutely loved college. Well, I took every class he had, and then when I got through that, I didn't want to do the rest of the English I was through. Oh, I so get that. So I traded, I traded for psychology okay. because that's what most of my family do now. And then, so uh, I did that for a while and decided I don't didn't like that. So then I 
finally went from a music degree when I came back to the States. Okay. And I went to a little place in Abilene called uh, McMurray University. Oh, it was college at that time. Okay. And uh, took the music part, but I wasn't interested in Texas government or biology or chemistry or all that stuff. So I got what I wanted. And, and uh, But the funny part is, God must have really known what he wanted me to do because I had creative writing, psychology, and music. When you combine those together, it makes for a great teacher. When he came back to the States, John saw his life beginning to really take shape. So you, in the late 70s, you moved, did move to Dallas, and then you came to moved Dallas. Moved to Dallas, and I taught... Uh, I taught while I was there guitar, and since I was in school, I could teach. So I gave some what they call extension courses and classes for adults and for students and uh, uh, at McMurray and Abilene Christian University. And then uh, when I came to Dallas, I needed a job, so I got a job teaching at a place called Freds and Strings, which was big place back in 1979, 1980s. And then our band started from there while I was playing and playing around. And, uh, but I still taught there whenever I could because I needed the money, you know. Before he moved into teaching music full-time, John had plenty of fun with his band. He wouldn't even tell me the name of the band unless I turned off my microphone. I can't put that on. Oh, that. okay, it can't be you. No, <laughs> okay. you can stop and I tell you, but. <laughs> we were a party band. Oh, okay. We were really good. Uh, the guy on my right there, with had uh, my left actually, is that right? Had uh, signed with United Artists and had some hits out. Uh, we toured a little bit with uh, Mel Tillis and some people, but only short little periods because my friend had a bigger alcoholic problem than I did. And uh, uh, you might have to cut this, but he, he was prone to mooning on stage. Which he mooned the Dallas cat. We played for the um, Dallas movie show um, cast party for the series, and uh, he mooned them, but they liked it. But at the end of the day, touring with bands simply wasn't paying the bills. They don't pay musicians good at all. Today, they're still paying similar to what I made 30 years ago. Literally. There's a guy named Adam Carroll. I don't know if you know Adam Carroll. He's a Texas singer. He, He went to Italy and tour, and I went with him and played with him because he's kind of a sweet guy, a nice guy. And so I went and played with him over in Italy. That was probably my last really, that was on, I don't know, 94, 95. And I decided for $50 or $100, I'm not going to do it. So I went to teaching and I've just had a ball. Suddenly John found himself acting as a role model for the younger generation. It came without warning. In many ways, John didn't quite feel ready. Life had been an adventure, but it hadn't always treated him well. For one thing, he and his English wife eventually parted ways. We stayed married for almost 10 years. Unfortunately, musicians are not real good at being married. Then I married a young lady that lasted about a year. And then I was married to another lady that lasted about six or seven months. Then I was married to another lady, a lady I played with, very good okay. musician. 
and great singer, and she, we were married for 10 years again. So I had 10 years, one year, six months, 10 years, okay. and now we're going on 16. So. Oh, okay. And uh, yeah, it took a while. Uh, the fourth marriage, uh, I never cheated, I never beat, I never was cruel. It just didn't work. Okay. Uh, pretty much all my exes and I are friends, uh-huh. you know, and uh, no animosity, no anger, no, you know, and so just didn't work out, you know. But the last lady that I was married to before my current wife was just really good, really, really good. So we played all over the place. The difficulty in that marriage, I think, was we played together, we lived together, we traveled together, we were in hotel rooms together, we shopped together. So towards the last six or seven years of that marriage, we were together 24 hours a day. The only time you were not together is when you went to the restroom. Wow. That was it. Wow. You know, so I think that that was kind of, you know, hard on the marriage. John had always been a deep thinker, like thousands of musicians before him. But soon he found himself in a place where life just didn't make sense. Even music couldn't help him understand the meaning of it all. During our conversation, John was really honest about a tough choice that he had to make when he reached his 40s. And it was funny, uh, when I was young, you you ever heard anybody say, if you made a decision for Christ, have you heard that? I didn't know what that meant, and I'm not sure when they say that, they know what that means. I thought it meant, did you tell everybody you're a Christian? Right. You know, do you believe in Jesus? Well, sure, I believed in Jesus. Right. You know, I grew up with it. I believed in it when I was young. You know, preacher's kid, right. you know, and explored atheism and agnostic and stuff like that. In my 40s, I got to thinking about that and whether it was real or not. Right. Because it, I, I thought, what if we are ants kneeling on a piece of straw praying to the giant ant? You know? And uh, I think a lot of questions that atheists ask themselves and, and agnostics ask themselves. But trying to look back on it and be logical. So many times I prayed and the prayers appeared to be magically answered. Mm-hmm. I could not all put them down as something I had engineered or coincidence right. or a mystic way things happen. I could, they, a few of them maybe, but not a whole life of them. So I had to either say my life was full of amazing coincidences or there was God. Well. It just ain't coincidence, right. you know. So I decided uh, that I was going to believe. But it's the funny thing is I decided. That's the word. Mm-hmm. And so I made the decision that if you come up tomorrow with 100% guaranteed, un- irrefutable proof that there is no God, I will believe anyway. Mm-hmm. That's, right. That was my decision, you know. And uh, it's made my life better. So, and not harder. People say it's hard. <laughs> I've been through a lot of stuff, but I wouldn't say it's hard to believe if you, you know. Does, so. does it allow you to have grace for people who are... I have to, don't I? Where you used to be? See, here's <laughs> what I want, to I, want to be, I want to be honest with you. There are a lot of people that I'm going to straighten out and tell them where they're wrong. As soon as I'm perfect... They're all going to get a big lesson on it. <laughs> but until that time, until that time, I have to love them 
right. and let them find their path. Mm-hmm. That's I cannot, I cannot tell them how to get there. Nobody could tell me. No. You know, I bowed up pretty quick. You know, <laughs> yeah, I know. and so uh, I just have to let people be who they are. You know. This new worldview helped John understand why he'd been given this new position as a leader of the younger generation. So when you look at your life and kind of the thread of your life, you said God knew what he was doing. So do you see different things that happened that have taught you and helped you uh, be where you are today? Do you see certain certain? Well, you know, everything kind of pointed. Well, you know, I mean, in all honesty, it was all, I was just pushed into this way. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know why, but I enjoy teaching. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you something real fun. I was watching a old eight millimeter movie that my dad had made when I was mm, seven, eight, nine, somewhere in that area. And my brother and I were playing on a construction site. My dad, when he would go place, would always build churches or missions or stuff like that. And they were building this church there. And they had the basement wall laid, which was about this high. And my brother and I were walking on the wall. And there was a two-by-six that went to the ground. And so I walked down the two-by-six, and my brother was scared. And he wouldn't do it, and so he started crying. So I walked back up there and just gently laid him down. I thought, boy, that was nice. Then I turned him around and forced him back up and turned him around to walk. (laughs) So I'm teaching him back even then, which I was kind of surprised at. And it wasn't probably good for him. Life had reserved a spot for John DeFore to become a music teacher. By doing so, he would impact countless of young lives. I think of myself as a signpost. I'm saying, don't go this way. I went that way. Doesn't work. Go this way, and it'll be all right. That's kind of what I want. But I'm not going to say, don't do this. Because what if somebody had said to, you know who Kurt Cobain is? What if somebody had said to Kurt, that's lousy music, don't go that way. You see what I mean? It would have been, that would have been. Though he may be a teacher and a Christian, John still has a wild streak that no one will probably ever be able to get out of him. As a result, all kinds of students find their way to John's studio. On the next episode of Kava, we'll hear about how John teaches his students, as well as what he's learned from them over the years. Thank you for listening to this episode of Kaval the Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and that you will subscribe, download, and share this on your social media pages and with your family and friends. If you find yourself in a desperate place, it is our desire that you would be able to borrow hope from those who've gone before you and shared their stories. They have exemplified the meaning of Kaval, learning to wait during difficult times to find an eventual positive outcome. I can't express my gratitude for my head writer, Rebecca Gray, and audio engineer, Meredith Douglas. I would not be able to do this without you. For more information, please visit kavathepodcast.com. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.